And welcome back to a very special Sunday School edition of the Michael Deacon Program. And yes, I'm Michael Deacon. I am the Echoes of the Fallen. First-time listeners out there, thanks for finding us. We do hope you stick around. This is a very different kind of show. A place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. We do admire you for your curiosity. Joining us tonight is Mr. John Kelly. Do you remember John? He is a former CBS radio host. He was number one rated in U.S. television. His work exploring consciousness, communications, and the paranormal and UFO phenomena. What's up, boys and girls? Welcome back for another exciting edition of the Michael Deacon Program. Tonight we have a plethora of topics to discuss, as we usually do, right here for all of you. Mr. John Kelly has drawn assignment yet again, a veteran of the program. We will be talking about COVID-19, Donald Trump, Ghislaine Maxwell, and Mr. Jeffrey Epstein. All your friends are here, and they were all listed in a special little black book. I hope you've had a great week, by the way, wherever you are. Even Michael Cohen had a great week. And of course, after the break, we might have more. Hope you stay tuned for this one. Now, let's get down to brass tacks and bring in Mr. John Kelly, who I believe is patiently waiting. Uh, John, are you with us? I am with you. My goodness. How are you, John? I'm doing very well. It's a very uh, hot summer here in Vancouver, British Columbia. We are at the beginning of our heat wave. Very nice. And my goodness, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's always nice to catch up with you, John. Uh, It's terrific to be with you again for a Sunday night edition of your show. The Sunday School Edition, as I like to refer to it as some time. And of course, the last time you were here, we talked about Melania Trump. That's right. Mask up, everybody. Mask up. And so much has happened since then. I thought it was the right time to bring you back in. And, of course, as we get the ball rolling here tonight, can you tell the listeners, the first-timers out there about yourself before we dive right in with tonight's Dark Matters? My name is John Kelly. My website is yourinnervoice.com. I became popular in uh, North American and international media about 20 years ago for reporting uh, strange perspectives on newsmaker speeches. I used uh, contemporary digital audio technology to mine information from the human voice and determine unconscious messages that eventually were vetted by real-world events. So my reporting on the Bush-Iraq war, the BTK killer, the identity of the Russian spies surrounding Anna Chapman, all these high-profile cases uh, where I produced these unique audio samples they became flashpoints in media and a terrific, tremendous interest. And these, these findings continue to be of interest to people like uh, Michael and, and his audience. So uh, we're looking for unconscious forensic clues to real world events encrypted in human speech. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. I've been using this technique clinically for about 20 years. Um, my clients include many uh, graduates in fields like medicine, psychology, psychiatry. Uh, many licensed professionals have had a chance to review my my uh, practice and so on. It's been a, a wonderful journey, and uh, we're, we're continuing a part of that journey tonight with our discussion of uh, Trump and Maxwell Epstein Triangle. 
Oh, yes. And of course, I mentioned your experience with CBS Radio. Can you tell the listeners about that? A, a different world indeed when you were with CBS. I was very popular in morning radio throughout the United States, and people saw that my time spent listening statistics were very high, that audiences would persist on staying on channel during the commercial breaks. And so this generated tremendous interest in news and editorial rooms. And eventually I was approached by a morning host for a small sister station in Minneapolis uh, to produce a morning feature, a weekly feature of, of my sum my summary of news events. And I, I, I thought it was just a tremendous opportunity to break into media and, and to start a, uh, a platform for syndication for national syndication at that time. My, my, my technique, my production technique was very, very low fi, but the information I was producing on a weekly basis was very, uh, newsworthy and very intense and unique reporting. But at the same time, because of my passion and appetite for risky, uh, situations, I was continuously publishing very highly sensitive information that could transform the, the political narrative in the United States. And so it, it came to a, a point where I was told by one of the co-hosts on that show that if I was to air my Dick Cheney, Vice President Dick Cheney findings that morning, there were serious concerns that the Secret Service would come in and lock down the station. So under that kind of pressure, I had to demur. I had to, I had to stand back from the, that window of opportunity. I could no longer continue to publish on that station. Uh, because, uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't meet this threshold for, uh, how, how could we say it? This, uh, this sense in our culture of this envelope of what is, what has become part of the parlance today about political correctness and cancel culture. You see, by being such a dissident, a vocal dissident, by pushing the envelope on freedom of expression and, and, and different constitutional rights, human rights in the United States, I exposed myself to a lot of questions. Uh, and so I lost, I lost that CBS platform, but it wasn't because of my, uh, because I wasn't willing to sit down when, when I thought it was time for just people to speak out. It was simply because I was too, too edgy. I was, I was the Dave Chappelle of morning radio in that. <laughs> Are you happy with how your run with CBS went? Well, uh, all of it, all of it was, uh, was fortunate circumstance. So I, you know, I, I send it to a position of, of, uh, privilege in terms of access to media, but uh, I, I couldn't fulfill it for a variety of reasons. As I say, I, I couldn't get to, I couldn't get to national syndication and keep that, that mother station, uh, due to all the pressure circumstances. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not satisfied that I saw the the full potential of what could be, but I know uh, that it was a it was a great honor to be given the reins in those multi million dollar operations. You know, to be given airtime and to be guaranteed airtime and to be part of the uh, part of their revenue generating model was my content. So it, it said a lot about the vetting of my content that my content was commercially and news wise acceptable. By the way, I've heard some of your old interviews, and I always found them to be um, pretty good. You're quite sharp when you were doing interviews regularly. Uh, yeah, well, those very, those very demanding situations, and early morning radio, particularly when you're covering multiple time zones, you could be. Uh, I'm a, I'm on the West Coast, but I could easily be with someone in Connecticut or or Maine doing a show uh, that, that my time is four in the morning or oh my. three. Yeah, yeah. The, because I my I wanted to be on those, those shows. I I pulled all those early hours, and yeah, it was it's very demanding, and typically as well, 
uh, scenarios involve uh, interviews by panels rather than one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. So it was was me and five people on, on the other side of the table right. uh, in a lot of those situations. So those those kind of real-world uh, boot camping uh, experiences have a formative effect on people's uh people's cognitive and you know, behavioral skills behind a microphone. Not everybody, as, as we know, feels comfortable on camera or behind a microphone. But in those kind of morning newsroom environments, uh, people find their way. And it's through, uh, it, you know, it's through intense pressure. What can I say? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an extremely high pressure situation when you have those multi-million broadcasting situations. All that advertising dollars, all the all the legal issues about what you say and what you don't say, and, and we and we see people on those chairs losing it from time to time on the on the air or off air. People people lose people climb to high positions in broadcasting, and they may they may lose their platform over uh, explosive behavioral issues that that come up with stress. So, How sad. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of it's like for for broadcasters, it's like sports. You know, being on a, a high profile team, a winning team, and all these kinds of things. It has it has all that aura. When it's great, it's fantastic. And uh, there's there's a lot a lot of lows. If you read the, the stories of the famous talkers in radio, a lot of them were living out of the back of their station wagon at one time. So, yep, it's a rough it's a rough and tough gig. <laughs> it really is. And of course, I'm wondering when did reverse speech come into play for you? I became aware of that through Art Bell's shows in the in the 1990s. I was working in the Fortune 500 in the tech industry in a uh, in wholesale. So I was in a in a sort of within a monopoly environment where we were, were trading in tech materials. I I was responsible for uh, millions of dollars of networking and other kinds of equipment going out on time and the right configuration and so on. And so the internet at that time, this is the early to mid nineties, the internet is just coming online and the, the, all the media that we might not be getting through other sources like television or radio is now becoming accessible. And I'm becoming aware of all this, uh, paranormal art bell programming because, because I'm a lifelong paranormal fan. I, I've been reading on it since I'm a, a kid in the library, a young reader. So I learned about our bell shows and, and the, it, it just came up on the playlist, the, the, the broadcasts that they did at that time. Uh, which were very successful broadcasts and one of the top-rated guests on that show in the 1990s. And I was a big fan of the findings. And at the same time, I was a person who was a digital audio user because I had continued my music studies and practices from the time that I was a teenager. And I was using digital audio to transcribe uh, musical performances uh, so I could study uh, uh, composition in jazz and, and soloing and other kinds of questions musicians are interested in. But I was using the technology for that, and I was able to replicate some of the findings that were being presented on the radio because I had the I had the workstation on my desk, the same technique that I could do digitally. So it was basically through Oates. Uh, well, he was yes, he was the guest on that show. He it's his brand, right? Right. That's his trademark and and and, and commercial license and what and whatnot. So that was that was how. The world uh, became aware of the people using this technique in applications in forensic st studies and in uh, clinical studies for uh, wealth and uh, health, health and wellness. Excuse me, wealth and health, wealth and hell. <laughs> well, it's a very controversial story. Yeah. The uh, the history of the Reverse Speech Institute. Let me tell you, but I I was there during a peak period when it was a very successful small uh, internet and radio based business. 
and there were uh, 10,000 users of their analog recording devices and other kinds of numbers they generated. And that was also the time when, when this kind of paranormal talk radio was monopolized by the Bell Show, Coast to Coast at that time. It was one of the few platforms where people could go to listen to uh, deep conversations on the on the various topics that have, that were at that time very niche, which had now become widely popularized. At, you know, thousands and thousands of platforms. Uh, but at that time, it was it was just a uh, in, in the collective culture. You know, it was all of us were learning about something together at the same time, and that was the platform that it happened through. So yeah, the, the school was set up in California, and I was down there. I was studying, learning techniques, and meeting with the scholars who were behind the scenes, who were mentoring or overseeing the. Uh, the institution, uh, and having various adventures through that, uh, uh, and I, because because of perceptions of, of challenges that were occurring in that organization, I I broke with the organization and went away to, uh, to with the with the tools to form my own practice, uh, and I eventually sort of I don't know I haven't really tried to formally name things other than I, I have a website called Your Inner Voice, but I we. Uh, I revised the procedure for the clinical application, and I produced baseline uh, reporting over 20 years that was cons- consistently vetted objectively. Not, uh, in other words, I, I focused on creating uh, scientifically usable data rather than uh, inflating any kind of dogma or, or cultic overtones or, or the aura that may surround such a practice. You know, it's re- reverse speech, again, is a trademark term. And so there's a, there, are, there have been a, just a history of challenges. Uh, even today, we see people fighting in courts over trademarks. As I say, it's a very fractious uh, type of scenario. Uh, I believe you tried to get that guest on your show at one time, and for, for whatever reason, they, they declined. Isn't that true? Well, he was scheduled to be on, but he fell out like twice leading up to the show. Well, a very, uh, a very, a very poor, uh, low mark performance. Uh, not even couldn't even get to the uh, the destination on time. What can I say? I, my, again, my perceptions there were significant problems within that organization at the time. I was a complainant in a sixty million dollar lawsuit, along with more than twenty four other people who wrote uh, notarized uh, statements in support of Art Bell versus David Oates in court. Oh my. By, Bell claimed that Oates had broadcast on a podcast, uh, he, brought, he had broadcast claims concerning Art Bell involved in uh, a pornographic enterprise in the late 70s and early 1980s. Oh, that's on record. Some, some, some of this was published in the Roswell Daily Record, in fact. Right, no, that happened. The of Art Bell and his then partner. Oh, yes, in San Diego. Correct. And so his, his partner of that time, whose name escapes me in the moment, upon Art Bell's death, went to a podcast. I think they call themselves Reality Check. It's on YouTube and gave a full and in-depth uh, discussion of her perceptions of what she and Bell had been up to at that time. Uh, nonetheless, uh, this became, this topic became the, the flashpoint for a, for a $60 million lawsuit. David Oates talking about Art Bell's uh, shadow history, whatever that may have been, as it was reported. I remember. Uh, yeah. Involving pornography and other problems. Uh, these, um, this reporting at the time was the flashpoint for that lawsuit. And so, as I say, uh, at least two dozen people plus myself uh, said in notarized statements concerning their perceptions of the, uh, of David Oates. I never knew that. Wow. Uh, and those were published online on, on the Coast to Coast Time of that day. This is a very long time ago. And as you may well know, the Internet is famous for um, erasing history. Yes, it is. 
And so the history of almost all of that is gone from, from a time when it was on one of the most, you know, top 1000 websites of the time. It was on the front page. You could all see it to today. I think there's only one document that still exists that was, uh, sequestered by some unknown party on Google Documents that I found. Google Documents, yes. If you look around there, you'll find some very interesting uh, backstories to things. And so, so some, some forward-thinking persons foresaw the day when this all this history would be erased, and they sequestered an affidavit up there. And another a, a blogger named uh, Rabid Dog or something like that. I can't remember. How, 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 I, I have this link anyway. Says as a. a there's a blog with a series of articles and letters pertaining to this uh, this lawsuit and the issues at the time and the the uh, the misconduct of the parties uh, related to uh, more pornography and online pornography and endless 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 uh, you know uh, clown clown affairs uh, and so as I say it was it was it was a very let's say it created a very unprofessional environment it created an inhibitory environment where I felt that participants in, in clinical clinical work could not succeed given this an oppre- there was an oppressive aura and so I sought to clar- clarify that and to uh, create a practice that was more wholesome in my opinion and something that followed like things like ethics. You know, things that the kind of guidelines. In other words, when, when, when practitioners are proposing that alternative paths to wellness are viable and that they sh- people should engage commercially and hire, you know, alternative doctors and such, they have to, in their proposal, they have to be able to show that the quality of service is as good or better than what's already available. And so whenever we, we bring to the marketplace a substandard service, there's always going to be questions about why is it, why should that even exist? Right. Why should the market support services that can't even meet um, minimum baselines? All the licensed practitioners in health, uh, mental health and so on are, are, are subject to board review and other kinds of governing bodies, uh, depending on the jurisdictions. And even here in British Columbia, where I can be titled as a therapist without holding a PhD in psychology. I can I can call myself a therapist because it's not a protected title. Those titles are actually up for review right now. The medical board in this province wants to review all of this and to see if folks who are um, overstating their qualifications, you know, should be kept in the marketplace and so on. But for for the last twenty years in British Columbia, I could be labeled as a therapist without conflicting with the protected titles that are uh, that govern, you know, doctors and other nurses and other people practicing uh, medicine in those schools of thought. So. Right. And so, uh, yes, uh, I thought there was, I thought there were uh, significant problems in the reverse speed organization. I broke with them. I was pursued for years by David Oates, uh, who wanted to threaten, threatening me with lawsuits, not unlike some of our modern ufology mm. uh, figures of, of, of these days, who's chasing me from radio station to radio station with threats of lawsuits. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite an exciting adventure. But in the, in the course of that, I, I produced all this excellent, uh, usable scientific data and the ex- public experiments and demonstrations that I conducted, uh, created this sense of, um, uh, objectivity around my work that, that, that transcended any personal opinions about what was going on because of the consistent vetting of my findings over time. That the, uh, the, the, the validity of my claim was, was only further reinforced every time I brought that kind of material to air. Every time I beat the press on reporting the identity of a Russian spy, or I named the serial killer by his, uh, his demonic possession issues before he confessed to them. Every time I did that, it only reinforced my position and made it stronger and stronger. 
Uh, and so I was, I became more and more invested in my editorial point of view on the questions of the day and the stories that I was covering. And sometimes this led to significant conflicts with different platforms, including uh, my friends at CBS Radio and uh, eventually examiner.com. Uh, and uh, from time to time, Facebook and from time to time, YouTube and sometimes the show. platform really <laughs> problems. But I, I, I was able to do enough of this, uh, proto-scientific work in, in the window of time when I when the opportunity was ripe, I was able to produce enough data that I, I uh, even if I can't recreate those conditions today, you know, if I can't get back on CBS or CNN or some platform like that, that the, uh, the experiments are done and the trends are identifiable and that any scholar can examine the data and make that basic sense out of it. And so, in other words, the value of that opportunity was achieved in many ways. As I say, I'm disappointed the window of opportunity closed as it did in some ways as well. But, but in terms of the value, the public value of the, um, the findings uh, being and the execution of the practice and the refinement of the practice that took place only because I had so much airtime in that window, uh, it was, that work was done and uh, it will, that has, that continues to have value. Uh, my, my work continues to attract interest from uh, clinicians and, and uh, practitioners in different fields. Psychologists are leaving mainstream medicine to go into different kinds of practices. They don't want to be prescribing doctors anymore. And so they're looking, they're looking for the new, they're looking for the next opportunity. And, and my body of work fits into that tapestry of the evolution of mental health and these other areas. No doubt. And to wrap up with the internet talk, uh, I just wanted to quickly mention and tag on to what you were referring to saying uh, people want to scrub certain things off the internet, but also online. There are some folks that want to preserve some things. And of course, some of those old Art Bell shows you could, you could still actually find on uh, streaming websites. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah, but to, to a certain point, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm already, I'm a kind of guy who can take so much juice out of existing media. I'm not, uh, I'm not searching in the farthest flung realms of the internet by any means. You're, you're still fine. Yeah. I mean, you can I was find there, those shows. uh, when those shows aired, I think I, I cassette tape probably or VHS, some of them. Uh, and you know, I live, I was there. So, uh, it, it, yeah, it's it, for, for the, for the diligent researcher, it's still possible to find some things, but in terms of the complexity of history, uh, some of it, it's it's kind of strange because we live in an age, in other words, we live in an age where so much documentation of events is possible. Right. But by the flip side of that is, due to our information management practices as a society, the living storyteller in some cases is, is becomes the only evidence of of factual history that is no longer otherwise accessible, if only due to intensive censorship. In other words, not because I'm coming here tonight to say that I just stepped off a spaceship uh, you know, hanging with my buddies in, on Jupiter. And <laughs> right. Just take my word for it. But rather that legitimate history that used to, there used to be excessive documentation, easily searchable is, uh, is, is, is deliberately made out of reach. The management, our, our management information is, uh, our management of control is so, uh, refined now and, and excessive that, uh, we're in scenarios not only due to overwhelming amounts of information being available that we can't keep up with and, and cultural. Now we're in a, you know, three different crises at the same time. And so cultural change is happening in all these fields and we can't keep up with that at the same time either. Right. Uh, the, in other words, the sense of cultural memory between generations, it's as if our, our cultural PTSD is, is collapsing as well, that we as a society, uh, forget 
you know, half of us don't have any re- memories about 9-11, which was a transitional point, or any memories about you know, other events that happened in the last 10 years. Maybe we only remember seven to five years now. Uh, it makes us easier, you know, it makes us easier if we forget about the Iraq war, then it'll we'll be right. easier to call up to the next invasion. I really enjoy the fact that you mentioned 9-11 because I've been talking about 9-11 uh, for weeks now, it seems. I always mention it, and I always mention the fact that it seems like um, the media really is not trying to make anyone sort of remember, which is kind of ironic, which was some um, trademark line someone was using uh, years ago. Remember 9-11? I mean, that was some slogan at one time, but it's, it is funny that as a nation and, of course, the mainstream media not really mentioning 9-11 as much as they used to. Uh, and even the cultural artifacts of that time, how many of us remember uh, today's uh, security color code? Are we are we code blue today? Code blue, how right. safe are we? You remember Our that? Security, Tom Ridge, <laughs> daily briefings, right? I, I mean, this was the culture of the day. It was so surreal. We're in code red. And, uh, there were, I mean, there's there has been chatter and discussion about some of this, but I don't think that we have at all really assimilated and made sense out of many, many of these uh, transformational cultural things that happened in the last 20 years. Uh, and and I so I joined the ranks of people who say that there's lots still to be discovered about 9-11 in that period. There's a lot of uh, a lot of miscomprehension about it. Right. And of course, John, how are you holding up out there in Canada? Well, we are in my particular part of Canada. We have successfully weathered some months of this crazy pandemic and a, a quasi lockdown in, in this province. So half we have essential businesses that continue to operate and everybody else was supposed to stay home. Now we're, we're in sort of a phase three of reopening. And that means a lot of folks who've been uh, hermiting in their cave, so to speak, are, are going crazy, going to the beach and crowding uh, at every venue in, in this crazy summer. You know, people want to celebrate and people are stressed by being uh, jammed into their homes for, for three months for the spring. So we're, we're, we're risking uh, infection and other problems after coming out of a period where we did better than a lot of areas. Uh, Canada as well initiated programs uh, such as the uh, relief funding that was made available from the federal government. And I, I see this from my friends and the people I follow on Facebook talking about this comparative statement that uh, Canada was more social with their uh, federal money than the folks felt in the United States, although that we see in the news now more money is coming to Americans from the federal government in support and relief funding. We, we, we Our society in some ways has been re- relatively stable through this, the rioting, for example, have there been demonstrations and protests here? Yes, there have. But the intensity of violence that has underscored uh, the protest movement in the United States is just not is not here. We've, we've had intense protests over pipelines in the last several years. Right. Federal police meeting protesters with fear of gunfire. But this this business of the pandemic and the COVID lockdown and such hasn't generated that. We've had protests, uh, but the people here... We, we've been very fortunate. My friends call it the Shire in comparison to the conditions that folks are facing, particularly the intense social conditions with the federal policing and such in the U.S. cities. Canada, Canada has not reached those conditions. So we, we're, we're trying to, I feel in a way we're trying to keep what we have. You know, we've, we have a lot to lose if we, 
if we fail to uh, keep keep the course on keeping infection down and the death rate down here, that uh, we could be we could be caught up uh, in a whole kinds of problems. And of course, our inter, our interrelatedness with the United States economically and culturally and so on is 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 a major part of the experience here. And so, whatever fortunes the folks are facing in Texas and California, Florida and New York, Chicago, all these different places. Whatever fortunes they're facing are, are our fortunes as well, because we're, we're in business with companies in all of these different places. And their, their fortunes, their ability to keep productive and keep their people working is uh, casts a light on our future as well. We're not, we're not an isolated economy. We're the, we're, the large, we're the United States' largest trading partner, for goodness sakes. So uh, nonetheless, if you came to Vancouver today, if you could get into the country and walk around town here, you'd see, you know, it's calm, it's, uh, you know, it's green, it's, it's beautiful today. Uh, uh, the, the, the agriculture up here, because of uh, lack of access to workforce, because migrant workers would typically be picking our fruit and so on, uh, they, they're scaling back. And so we're looking at agricultural shortfalls uh, coming in the fall and winter because our growers are not going to grow as much produce if they can't get, if they can't get it picked right. up the fields. It's exactly. In the field. Right. Uh, so these, these are the kinds of conditions. It's like that. I go out every day and try to make sense out of what's happening in my neighborhood, who's closed, who's open, what what are people doing? Businesses are slowly letting people in. Restaurants are letting people sit in a little bit more. Uh, although the province just quickly walked back on some of that, but you know, it's like that. People are people are gingerly opening. If I if I go to see my friends, everyone is very very cautious. People are masking up. People are not my in my circle. People aren't seeking out busy events or crowds and such. They are uh, keeping the they're playing on the side of caution. We're gonna they want people want to want to fault on the side of caution over this thing. Uh, that that's the tone up here. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 been a crazy crazy time. I think the the word unprecedented has been used <laughs> the, the, the most to describe the time that we're in. Yeah, it's been sort of a term that's been beaten to death by the media. But <laughs> these are historic times, which is another phrase that's been beaten to death by the media. But it is true. The world is currently in a standstill, a very bizarre standstill right now. This almost doesn't seem real, but I'm afraid I've tried poking myself and my arm a few times. And yes, I can confirm that this is very real and we are very much in the present. And as some say, this is a a simulation of sorts, uh, life itself. But I don't know about any any of that. Um, All I know is that a lot of Americans out there and people around the world are very, very frustrated. Who is responsible? Where are they? Who are they? So many questions left unanswered. Uh, John, in the wake of this outbreak, a curse, I like to say. It's been uh, it's been the toughest, the toughest social experience I've lived through in my lifetime. Uh, I've I've my own personal ups and downs, but going through this together with everybody has has been uh, every Hollywood catastrophe movie that I ever saw on repeat for, for three months. It's, you know, in my, in my mind and my, my emotional life, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's really, it has shaken me. It has shaken me. And it's in, a really shitty way, I, situation, John. Well, Pardon my French, but very So, so there you apropos. go. I mean, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of hardship uh, and uh, there's, there is no, uh, on, on so many fronts, there was not there was no certain path forwards. Uh, a lot of a lot of the s- systems and, and ways of organizing and such that we've relied on for generations in this in this under these conditions are, are ineffective. It's it, it's like the early uh, part of the 20th century and the Spanish flu conditions. It's that in terms of the uh, the impact, the health impact, and well, and, you know, the meme is that we've got the Spanish flu, the Great Depression. 
and the uh, the 1960s riots all uh, all in one, all stirred up. And yet, at the same time, there's there's it, this is happening in uh, it's happening across certainly in the United States. It's across the nation, but there's all these. It's it's it, it, a lot of these scenarios are localized. When I ask folks, my friends on Facebook from different locations, I ask, "How are you doing?" And people are able to report from different locations that things are fine where they're isolated, but in the urban centers, uh, it's is the greatest stress. Yeah, it's not very good out there for many various areas, urban areas uh, in particular. But and of course, on, on the West mm-hmm. Coast, Seattle and Portland are, are flagships for uh, near revolutionary conditions. Seattle was uh, hosting a Chad site, uh, six blocks of a uh, Capitol Hill region in downtown, being taken over by uh, a crew of people, including a gangster rapper and his long rifle toting posse. Yes, were uh, policing. The district supposedly, uh, with absent the Seattle Police Department, who had uh, uh, walked away from their precinct, uh, giving giving rise to all of some of Hollywood's worst uh, 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 precinct uh, assault movie John Carpenter type of uh, scenarios. You know, when the police the police abandon the precinct, it's like the, the war zone has has taken over. Uh, there was there was great fear of a of a rally of patriots coming into town if if Seattle couldn't straighten that situation out uh, before July fourth. Yeah, whatever happened to that, John? And uh, you know, there was going to be a huge armed conflict. Yeah, I've heard rumors online of um, bikers and armed patriots going to storm the area, but I don't think that ever happened. I That's right, be because the, in Seattle, the police department and the mayor's office uh, pull, pulled a plan together and put it into action to evict the Chad. Chaz, uh, the site has been evicted. But it's, what has happened, though, is that the uh, the rally, protest rally uh, community has reassembled itself and is reappeared. Apparently, they're in the middle of intensive rioting uh, right now, I, just from my quick read of this weekend's headlines. Uh, the, so, in other words, the autonomous zone is gone, but the the fury and the passion of the protest and all the smoke and fire and that's accompanying it is is going full force here on the west coast the uh, separate separatist uh, culture of the pacific northwest is known as the cascadia movement where uh, certain visionaries uh, see oregon and washington and british columbia and alaska all becoming one big uh, political economic unit of its own and so this notion that the Pacific Northwest is on fire like this and with this kind of political fervor and left-leaning fervor and whatever people say about it is uh, it's not without it's, it's not like it became like that overnight. You know, the people's excitement about the issues that they're protesting for or fighting for or whatever they're getting arrested for, whatever they're uh, is under dispute in the moment. I think and I think we're far past George Floyd at this point. Right. The the, the you know, the unjust death of a, a person in police. Custody. I think people already forgot his name. Isn't that right, George is it Floyd? George Floyd, yeah, exactly. That's my point. George who? Right. Well, and Everyone so, forgot. Uh, yeah, George. So, <laughs> you know, we lost George, but this was, this was, the, that was the spark, but the fury, you know, the underlying, uh, um, the underlying engine that has fueled it. For example, I think we're at to 60 days of riots in Portland now. Something like that's that, yes. Of, that's it's a lot of rioting. Look, it's pretty break, wild. Right? 60 days. So, and that movement has extended. Uh, to the UK and Australia. I mean, that's that's pretty bizarre. I, I didn't expect that, by the way, to see people protesting in the UK because they have been oppressed by the the police officers out there who are unarmed. 
which is kind of funny to me. Historically, the, the cultural uh, image of the British was, that, as you said, that the police were functioning without carrying guns. Uh, right. Up, up until the last five years, which I think now, uh, due to the intense intense violence on the streets, I mean, the unfortunate reporting coming out of places like London, where people are being assaulted with long knives and stuff, it's unbelievable. Yep, it's insane, well, really. So, uh, yeah, they, this whole cultural face, is, it's a very, you know, the whatever peace we may have had in some of these corners of the world, is we're losing it. You know, the thing that we had is the precious, these precious commodities uh, are being are being spent, and 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 we're losing control. Of that we don't know how to get it. We don't know how to bring the peace back. Uh, the situation in the United States presently, with this aura of rioting and protest, unmanaged protests and such, is uh, unmanaged or unmanaged. But what about, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, given the what the Constitution says. But uh, unresolved, I think, is the right word. Unresolved protest. Um, it's it speaks to this. It speaks to this. Uh, it speaks to it speaks to great uncertainty. One of the bywords of our times is the question of civil war. People wonder if if we are so far past the courts and the uh, the, the, the the political system. We're so past those systems now in terms of will, our willingness to try to use them to solve our problems that we're only going to be uh, shooting each other. There's, there is, as you had mentioned, uh, you know, people criticize the mainstream media. I, I mean, Fox News today on their, on their front page uh, was talking about all these new militias are shaping up to, to get into the, the scrum in the protests. You know, we're going to have militia on militia violence is, is what F- Fox is headlining on their front page right now. There, there, is, there is an element of that. I, I, had, I had thought that, the, as you had mentioned, the Patriot Rally, the so-named Patriot Rally for July 4th in Seattle would have been the time when we would have seen that. And, and the city uh, might have made a decision that would be better if they managed it rather than letting the, the Patriot uh, Club come in and, and, and you know, uh, vigilante go, go vigilante all over those uh, those those chaz chaz residents i don't know what to say these 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 long long fomenting uh, racial tensions economic tensions and other considerations for life in the united states uh, you know it's not like they just erupted overnight these conditions are simply uh, erupting in in more open and violent ways presently I don't know if I don't know if the Black Lives Matter people, from what I followed of the little I followed of the statements to the press from Seattle's Chaz, in terms of the the extreme rhetoric that they were articulating, I don't know if some of these are reasonable people. No, I don't know if these people can be negotiated with based on what I saw. Uh, but, but, but here's a, here's a byword for the day: in the United States, major retailers have stopped enforcing mask codes on on shoppers. And this is in following from their staff being assaulted, people getting shot and killed in stores over disputes about whether people should be masking on when they come into a store. And you will leave it. So the retailers have flipped on this issue, and it's in the news right now. Major brands are saying, you come to our store and you don't have a mask, we're not going to try to impose that on don't don't bring your rifle down here thinking you're going to have to get into World War III over a mask. We, we In other words, the public violence... The populations of violence has driven policy around mask wearing in stores, and the, the the business people have capitulated to the violence. This is this is this is this is a very telling sign that uh, that fists do a lot of talking even today in America. We see we see our politicians, some of our favorite politicians over the years. Do you remember when George Bush got that black eye when he was the president, George W. Bush? Yes, sir. 
and uh, is it Harry Reid and, and Senator Connolly? I think both of them, uh, they, we saw reports of both of them in the last five years wearing some kind of uh, medical condition on their face. Who was that? Who was that dude that that uh, Vice President Cheney shot with a shotgun? That's true. Disfigured him. Yeah, he shot a guy. Correct. And so I'm saying that it seems when the chips are down in terms of the push and shove of of culture and society in America today, based on this report of what the major retailers are doing, that violence speaks. Violence speaks, and change through violence in part, is still part of the destiny of, of, of the American society. Yes, sir. There's no doubt in my mind. When the businesses come back and say, because of the excessive violent response from the public to our policies, we're changing our policies. How many times do you ever hear the public businesses say that? And we're changing our policies. Sex and violence sell, by the way. Well, and so, and so this, this, the violence cure, it seems that uh, the population is, is destined for that because it is, uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a driving force in how the society operates, and at least we could say in terms of how major businesses serve serve the public, they're they're they're, they're concerned with someone pulling a gun or, or you know just losing it because of uh, they've been locked in under lockdown for three months. They're, that's right. That's their first concern. So violence, even this is and this is a uh, this is a difficult. Uh, you know, this is a difficult instrument to try to manage. Uh, people are complaining about excessive police violence, for example, and, and rightfully so. In many cases, these deaths and things are intolerable. But these, the protests today, they complain about police violence. They complain about federal police violence, and the the, the president is is apparently using his his uh, allocation of of law enforcement to go and uh, do some kind of exercises in these different cities that are uh, some of the state's attorney generals are, pro- are protesting in court. But again, it's the, ap- it's the application of violence that is seen as the cure from the White House in that perspective, as well as from these uh, outrageous protesters. And they're, some of them, there are unreasonable demands. Uh, it just seems, it seems that uh, violence is a go-to in our, in the culture and, Nobody, nobody seems to be sort of standing up. Well, I guess there's a lot of peace, people fighting for peace out there still, but it's not the, it's not the loudest voice in the room saying we need to bring some peace to the situation. It seems that we are, this culture is destined for a, for cycles of violence and their residual consequences, whatever. That's, that seems to be what oils the machine. Uh, that's what that's what the major retailers are, are are sold on in their boardrooms. I also wanted to, to uh, quickly say I'm not affiliated to any political party or group. I've never been known to be any sort of a cheerleader for anyone, by the way. And I most certainly love this country and will forcibly attempt to be optimistic about uh, whatever talking head they want to throw up and uh, throw up there on the world stage. And as of 2020, it's safe to say the jury is out. All the world's a stage, just like Shakespeare said, my friend. The world is a stage. Yeah, this is uh, this is high drama. I mean, this is uh, it's ca- the cast of cast of billions. We're, we're in at this point. Every country, every country, pretty well is uh, well. I can't, every country, but a, ma- a majority of countries have their hands in this uh, economic lockdown uh, and health and s- safety issue. Oh yes, a global pandemic at your door, civil unrest. I'm afraid I've got. An eerie feeling about all this coming up over the horizon as I stare off into the abyss, Mr. Kelly. I feel uh, more lawlessness will break out after this coming election. Whoever takes control, it, it simply doesn't matter. I think uh, people are tired of this obvious broken system. So you you feel that some of the protest issues that people are out marching for now are worth seeing through to the end? For some people, it is. I personally don't support it. 
But I, but I think we agree that there are uh, there are unresolved social justice are, issues in, in America but, that eventually need to be addressed, maybe sooner rather than later. Correct. I agree with that. And this is something we discussed. Yes, uh, sir. A show or so. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that, though. I, I don't disagree. I for sure know something is not right. Life itself is not right. The way we've been living is so far from what's natural, John. I think we've gone away from all of that. Uh, well, in some ways, we could say we've lost our good sense. Yeah, the you could say that. guided our ancestors, we may, have, we may have lost contact with some of the good guidance. I believe so. I think that's the proper thing to um, sum it up as. A reset is near, and every day it seems like Darwin might have been proven correctly. Uh, well, uh, you know, populations are here to live and die. Uh, hopefully, you know, we do, it, we do it in a great way, but yeah, life and death is... is uh, this, this is our this is our chance, you know. If we think this is so, such a historic time, then this is our chance to make it real and make it count, and to make it something that's worth handing to our descendants. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, dissatisfaction in, in society and culture. And I, you know, I, I would, in many ways, I'm such a, uh, I, I'm, I'm so, I, I'm called an eccentric. You know, I'm so, I do, I've chosen to do things differently in remarkable ways. Yes, you and have. that is. In part, born of great dissatisfaction about shortfalls in our society and culture, and I, I've wanted to be part of something better. And I think a lot of people, I, she say, a lot of people feel in, this, in themselves that we are, we are of something better, and we can make something better here. We all strive for that, and of course, John, we are at that point, almost an hour in. I think it's now time to talk about uh, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And yeah, well, the, the people of the hour, the question of the hour, you know, yeah. will Ghislaine Maxwell survive incarceration? Will she survive? It's like a game show. It is. This is, this is like one of these eighties movies. This is insane. I mean, this is like a bad uh, movie you'll find on Netflix at 2 a.m., John. <laughs> That's the way I see it. But of, of course, I want, I want to preface this by saying back in 2015, I had my doubts. That Donald J. Trump would go on to become a unstoppable phenom of a president. We have never seen a figure like this step foot into the political square. Exciting for many, to be honest. And I always saw him as just a TV guy, you know, a reality TV star. And one of the things that I, well, let me backtrack and say, there's a lot about Donald Trump that I actually like. He's actually kind of a likable guy. Like, he's someone that I would probably even drink a beer with, to be honest with you. He's a very approachable human being, very likable. But not everyone feels that way, and there's a lot about him that I don't really approve of and dislike. And one of those things has always been his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. I've always said this. Nothing new. I've always just had that in the back of my mind. And it's very strange. Every time I've, I've tried to have these conversations with um, various walks of life, it's like they don't want to hear it at all. They don't like talking about this subject for some reason. It's taboo. I, I, I guess so. I guess so. When, of course, all these things happening with Jeffrey Epstein and, of course, Ghislaine Maxwell, it's pretty interesting that this all sort of happened at this point in time in history. Eventually, I knew it would. That's what I, that's what I mean. Uh, that that this uh, series of events, yes. the, all these allegations mm-hmm. would eventually catch up with the parties. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw it even way back then happening. I thought eventually this is going to come out. And a lot of people are, are not going to uh, be happy with this at all. And specifically that it would occur while Trump was still in, in the office. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. In other words, if people could mine potentially the, some of the worst history from someone's life and, and, and put it out, you know, sort of as a propaganda event, create a propaganda event at, at a critical point in their, in their career, this, this could be, this is sort of storybook, right? This is like some of the in most way, despicable acts. In a way, the, yes. The highest office at the same time all wrapped up. And Netflix didn't help my, um, my mind at all, especially with uh, that series they put out, Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. Did you happen to see that? I'm aware of it, although I'm, I don't watch uh, Netflix, but I, I, I had seen, it's but you're aware. written about okay. it, yes. Yeah, they even went over Jeffrey Epstein's little black book. Oh, I see. It's certainly quite a, a list of names there, I imagine. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Everyone is on there. And so this uh, cult of personality is a driving force in, in our society, uh, whether for better or worse, these powerful uh, individuals emerge and become uh, they they become enmeshed in the culture to to intensive levels. Uh, Harvey Weinstein being an example of a very powerful figure who was also intensely corrupt. Oh yes, and he um, Harvey spent his time with uh, Jeffrey. Well, they were good, good friends. So this this uh, this this situation, you know, it's it's uh, it's never it never it never it never makes us happy to see people of, of lesser qualifications ascending to such positions in, in society. We hope that the better among us get to lead. You know, in in the challenging positions, rather than assigning all the resources and so on to people who are at least ethically incompetent, you know, for their positions in terms of controlling other people's careers and so on. Uh, again, Epstein, someone so so enmeshed in so many so many layers of complexity, so many uh, rumors of his history with the CIA and the Mossad and yeah. maybe the British uh, spy intelligence agencies. Well, and that was an inhibitor in the legal process that people were trying to enact any prosecutions. That took place in the last 15 or 20 years. People were inhibited by his ties to uh, the intelligence agencies. Uh, and the intelligence agencies are notorious for breaking the law to prosecute whatever agenda of the day that is that they want to do. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo has bragged openly about going to spy school to learn how to lie, cheat, and steal. Amazing. And, of course, I mentioned Michael Cohen in the opening of this program. And that brings us to the incident with Stormy Daniels, by the way. You know, to be honest with you, that didn't bother me one bit. I thought that was actually quite humorous, but other people didn't see it that way. It didn't appeal necessarily to the most, uh, the, the most, the strictest Christian denominations that, that a married man was, yes. was having sex with another woman while his wife was pregnant. I don't know what that. It, it, it hurt some of people's uh, feelings about family when they heard some of that, I think. But, yeah, but do people have sex? Yeah, it's breaking. Yeah, people have sex. How crazy, right? How bizarre. Well, and so the president is a, is a playboy by reputation and life of a, a celebrant's life, you know, surrounded by a beautiful woman, but being uh, in, involved in, in, the, in the beauty industry to the extent that he was. He was the president of more than one major pageant. That's right. And by the way, did he really get spanked with a copy of Forbes magazine? Well, that is what was reported. Now, only oh uh, only the witnesses uh, to that event uh, would really know was Stormy. Stormy uh, once claimed that, sh that she spanked the president with a Forbes magazine. And this was interpreted by Trump readers uh, Trump watchers, we should say. Trump watchers said, "Well, this is this is an act of sexual submission that the the, the, the powerful in society seek to temp seek temporary relief from the burden of the, of their uh, authority." Yeah, that's some BDSM stuff there. 
that well, this this is what was teased uh, by by this whole predicament and by, by by writing about it. People saying it had this kinky aura in a society that's obsessed with Fifty Shades of of uh, Republicanism. Uh, I love that, but yes, so, uh, he, he's a regular guy. You know, he was doing what lots of uh, wealthy men do. We wouldn't. We, yeah, again, people have sex is is is, is not news. Yeah. Uh, whether you know people who stand on the sidelines criticizing presidents, you know, they they people criticize what people wear and does their hair and who wrote their speech and there's lots of things to criticize uh, about presidents and president and first families and this is a is part you know it's part of the is part of the culture that people talk in critical ways about these things but is the president a human being and is that part is what they call the populist appeal mm-hmm. isn't that what people say that they people identified with with trump and that closed the deal hell i think when that's what got him with him it closed the deal i think that's what got him elected the whole stormy daniels uh, fiasco well, do American men celebrate uh, yes. male libidos? And, 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 you know, did Hugh Hefner have a huge career in the United States on, on the premise that he was this notorious playboy? Isn't that isn't that such a popular icon? We're still in, animalistic in nature. Well, we, ce- we, ce- we celebrate these figures in the society uh, in one way or the other. Yes. Uh, we, 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 what, if we talk about America and sexuality, there's a lot of complexity, cultural complexity. People... Uh, say it's the thing everyone thinks about, but nobody talks about. There's a lot of, in other words, people say there's a lot of hypocrisy in our culture, a lot of misunderstanding. But America at the same time is also a frontier in uh, some of the research in sexual science. Pioneering research was done in the United States that hadn't been done any, anywhere else. And so, you know, people talk about sex. President has sex. Uh, he's got kids, uh, you know, women. Uh, uh, but it's, it's the concerns about the deviant. Uh, yeah, that's when it relationships gets, that, that that's yeah. what, I think that's where people get concerned the most. Adultery is a, is is deviant, you know, it's a sin, right? But uh, the people around him, you know, his wife didn't divorce him, so uh, whose business is it, anyways? It's really we live in a time, unfortunately, where where these sort of uh, tittle tattle type of uh, dalliance type of affairs are uh, you know are not the most scandalous thing that's going on we live in a time when people are concerned about uh, sexual predators and children this is this is the time that we live in if and i think it's these i think well with the president let me clarify that that with the current it's, it's not trump himself but rather it's the us president if any leader is in an extortable position due to uh, controversial behavior that they've been documented performing Gathering, you know, in extramarital affairs or marital affairs or other uh, kinds of uh, controversial behavior. If they're documented in that conduct by an, an opposing party, that party may seek to blackmail them uh, under the terms that if they don't comply, that they uh, will be exposed for their behavior. And so this is where I think uh, people in the security sector look at the president's position and say, we should not have someone in that position who is who is so exploitable that uh, China and Russia could put undue pressure on the United States because of someone's moral misjudgment. And this is, I think, a a differentiating point. And we're being called to ask questions about this now, not only in the the political sphere involving the White House and this president, but even in other major national organizations. We know that uh, Jan Harzan lost his executive director position at MUFON just this month. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. As we move along here and say, since we're talking about convicted, um, convicted felons here, 
<laughs> I mean, well, it's, so he he is uh, he has been charged. He's been charged. There are right. allegations in in a system where we have a presumption of innocence. He he faces charges. Uh, the board didn't want to hang in with him, and they dropped him. You know, they dropped him from the, f- f- publicly. They dropped him from the organization. Some some situations, you know, was a charge against an employee. They wait till the court findings. You know, they wait till what the court find before the before the organization makes a decision. The, Mufon here uh, went judge jury executioner and have have concluded uh, that you know Jan they they have found they have found him guilty of something. Uh, nonetheless. Uh, I, I don't mean to leap ahead, but rather what I mean to say is that we're in a cultural time when this question of, of the security of, of a leadership position and the responsibilities of leadership include um, not exposing the uh, not exposing society to, uh, on the basis of personal misconduct uh, because because it can be exploited by an enemy, uh, you know, through blackmail. This is some fundamental ideas in leadership, and so the notion, the, the hysteria surrounding President Trump and his connection with the Russians. For example, uh, the P tape reporting, uh, by the way, which is it's a very which is a very strange story. You know, I don't mean to say this story. to be insulting or to be uh, to, to create problems for Trump supporters. But it's simply a matter of uh, history that the president was giving press conferences to dispute the P the P tape. The P tape became a, you know a part of the presidential record when he started talking about it. And so I want to say that there's there's talk going back all the way back to December of two thousand and uh, two thousand. And sixteen or fifteen, uh, like yeah, six months before public, yeah, two thousand. It's like six months before publication of the peep tape documents. The comedian Margaret Cho was talking about Donald Trump as someone involved in in uh, sex and urine. And so this this reputation, as I said, the reputation along with all of the other uh, sensual uh, reputation of Donald the Playboy, Donald the the champion, the conqueror of women. This uh, this had also accompanied just not unlike Hugh Hefner. You see, it was it was unavoidable, uh, and so it's again. Margaret Cho was talking about Do- Donald Trump and his relationship to urine, urinary related sex. It was very disturbing. The president himself, the president elect, gave a conference on this issue, denying denying the reports and the Steele dossier. It was a it was one of the most controversial items in the Steele dossier, which has subsequently been uh, heavily, heavily, heavily sandbagged. You know, I don't know anyone. Is anyone left in Washington who will stand up and say that that steel dossier was 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 a good, full of rich, full of factual information? But in that period of time, when people examine this question, the questions of deviance arose, and uh, that question, that deviant aura, accompanied the president. I, I wrote a story about it called "Behind the Yellow Mask." That's right. Which is kind of a strange uh, convention of titling when I talk about Trump and I'm wearing a mask in. 2000 and you know beginning of 2017 that's right no one else was talking about that you see but i i so i i ran with the story i thought it was strange and from a security perspective i stand by i think i think any professional working in that capacity who has responsibilities uh to in, in large organizations to to look out for these questions they one of their item their checklist items is susceptibility to blackmail susceptibility to extortion and that we should never stop being concerned about that uh, there was some due process here. Some Mueller and associates uh, looked into the Russian collusion. They reached whatever conclusion. Uh, the AG gave his statements about that. Whether or not those were entirely correct or misleading or whatnot is, is a question of dispute. But in other words, there was a process. And it just so happens that people like me who were who were complaining about Russian collusion uh, 
had a break from the the process. The process went on its own way, much like the official conclusions of the 9-11 Commission. You know, they sort of went on their own way. And I'm one of the other people on the sidelines still think, I still think that President Trump has Russian interests that he's willing to uh, dissemble for. I reported about that. Mm -hmm. I reported about that. A a number of stories about the president at the beginning of his presidency. They were very critical stories, very sorry that I had to say such critical things. I think I'm such, again, I, I, I emphasize, you know, I lost, I lost a feature position on CBS radio because I'm so, I'm so deeply invested in the, in the bitter medicine approach. You know, as, as Confucius says, it's the bitter medicine that gives the good result. And people who, who are shy from challenging issues, who don't want to do heavy lifting or get their hands dirty, are doing themselves a disservice and they're doing, eventually we do the society a disservice if we're not willing to at least address these questions when they come up. And so, that 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 is my uh, that is my feeling. I, I I found it very disturbing to have to report on these things. I didn't seek it out. Uh, it, it fell upon me, but I felt that if I failed, if I failed to do my duty to to, to at least give the public a chance to evaluate the information that I was finding, then that would lead to worse consequences. It was better it was better that I avoided omission. And uh, if it didn't if it didn't make me happy, if doing my duty didn't make me happy, you know, it wasn't. That really wasn't part of the deal to be with. Uh, you know, sometimes we sometimes we're called to do difficult things. That's right. Out of duty, it's not because it's make it's our personal desire to make it's going to make me so happy. I, in fact, maybe I'll maybe I'll have to go in front of a some sort of a, a rhetorical firing squad in front of the public on some big radio show <laughs> where everyone's beating me over the head with with uh, hammers because I'm I'm holding some unpopular position. But it, what I'm emphasizing is uh, it's better it's better to have a look ahead, even if it's even if it's not what we hope to see, because it gives us a chance to uh, to do a course correction. You know, course correction is something that people are talking about now. We're saying, what if, if only, if only, you know, with COVID-19, people say, if only we did this, if only two weeks earlier or whatever, right? People are second guessing and, and armchair, armchair uh, coaching, quarterbacking, the, the, the White House response to the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, again, this this uh, is what if and so on. We don't want to create a situation where we have to look back and ask those questions. We want to. I think. I think as a, as a professional coach, as an international coach with a twenty year practice and, and you know a client list that includes families of America's richest uh, families and uh, the descendants of U.S. Uh, senators and all these all these different people that have, I've talked to in my clinical work. It's the same thing that uh, you know we're we're called to we're called to make difficult decisions. It's better to do our duty. And let and let the chips fall where they may. So, if I have to report on a difficult story, right. if I have to talk about a story I don't like, uh, it's my duty to do. Right. So, John, do you personally believe that Donald Trump was into water sports? I have I have cause to believe that there's something going on with you that. Something, as as okay. a clinician, as someone who studies uh, male and female reproductive health in my clinical practice, yeah, I believe there's something to that. Amazing. And of course, we've heard throughout the years from both Trump and Melania, when they talk about how they met, they reported to have met at some sort of a Manhattan nightclub during some fashion week in New York uh, in 98, if I recall. Well, Epstein is named as as the uh, person who set them up in some reports. Exactly. That's where I was headed. I also read that Jeffrey Epstein was the one that played Cupid here. Right. Interesting, right? Right, as if people are being uh, traded as commodities, you know, human commodities. Very strange, very strange. And, of course, we've had Donald Trump mention um, those weird comments he made about Ghislaine Maxwell saying, I wish her well. 
I wish her well. This is what created a furor in the press this past week. No one really understood what he meant when, when the allegations were so terrible. Why would the president uh, you know, want to extend such public sympathy from as, as president? I mean, certainly he could uh, write her a letter as Donald Trump if he felt that way. Certainly. And right now I have a GIF, an animated GIF playing in the background of the chat with one... Donald J. Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. And in the background, you could see Ghislaine Maxwell. That's right. You could see her laughing about having a great time. I mean, I've seen so many photographs of Donald Trump and Ghislaine by themselves. It's hard not to imagine that they're not friends of some sort. And the president has denied even even knowing them at one point. He's, he's absolutely gone from uh, warm to cold on these people. There's no doubt. Very odd, though. I'm just thinking, how many times do you, how many times can you take a photograph with someone before you can officially call them a friend? Well, it seems to me that, and critics complain that this president constantly disowns. He'll dis- he'll disown his dog if he thinks it's in his immediate political interest. This president disowns people left, right, and center. It's it's a it's a meme and a gag from his critics that this president would disown his own family. Yeah, I just I just don't don't understand that. I really uh, well, don't. Well, this disowning this, behavior this is a very uh, this is business, this businessman Trump is a very opportunistic, strategic person. He's looking for opportunities, looking to expand his position. And when when the utility of the people around him doesn't serve that interest, uh, he can't, he can't get any more good press out of his relationship with Epstein or, or Maxwell. Uh, He's, he turns off of them, he's, he turns cold on them, and he denies knowing them. And I think one of the people who talks about this, maybe not the, the, the most reliable source in the news, but Anthony Scaramucci has commented on this fickle, uh, this fickle nature uh, that he's seen as someone who's known uh, Donald Trump for, for a long time, someone who served in the Trump White House for two weeks or less. But he, he's still in the press, and I think he's commented on this. this people are very fickle, uh, and this fickleness and this uh, short-term commitment, uh, opportunistic commitment. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'm a person who, the president may have a lot of charming qualities, no doubt, but I'm a person who, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm a kind of guy who doesn't trust people. As, I, I trust them no further than I can throw them. I mean, that's a good, because someone pitches, pitches an thumb. idea. And the president has pitched many things in, in terms of his capacity as president and his, his campaign platforming. I mean, how many how many of the major platform issues that the president entered office under were fulfilled? It's not to say the president hasn't done anything in the last three or four years, but uh, there's many there's many areas like the the wall on the southern border and other unfulfilled unfulfilled promises based on the the fervor with which they were proposed. You think that that stuff would have been wrapped up in year one? Well, nonetheless, uh, it's not. You know, once you get into pre- become the president, you find out things aren't the same as they they made us seem from the outside. You know, we don't know until we get into a situation. But I, I say that this president has a history. It's part of his his persona as a businessman to be to, to be a pitch, you know, hard pitching something every day. If it isn't Goya beans, right? Oh my, Goya beans, yeah. If it isn't Goya beans, he's a pitch man, right? He's got he's got to have something to pitch. He's got to have that hydroxychloroquine in his pitch, right? Always something. And whether or not it pans off, it pans out to be anything. It's this glorious pitch. That he's giving that charms, you know, it charms the audience, and they, for a moment, they believe that what he's saying is is the truth, and that's that, you know, this is Donald Trump's charmed lifestyle. On the flip side of that, they say is it's not charming. In fact, it's you know, there's all kinds of disgusting things about people 
that we would rather not know about. And this president also has a reputation by his own by his own conduct. NBC, NBC uh, aired that tape during the election year about the, uh, the w- grabbing women below the belt. Well, it was the president who was saying that kind of stuff, not uh, people making it up. Yeah, again, I, I didn't even... They say, very right. charismatic, lots of dark side, you know, lots of dark side... I didn't even have an issue with, with him saying that, though. You know, that's not a, a big deal for me, but I know a lot of people out there were very, uh, uh, quote-unquote, offended by that, but, you know, that's that's normal talk. Uh, people, people say that, but... I think that the uh, people who observe this, the culture recognize that uh, the glorification of acts of sexual violence is a, uh, is a deviant pathway. If, if we go to airports pre-TSA era uh, and line up for inspection before boarding, uh, you know, 1999, uh, pretty much guaranteed just about every airport in the world, nobody is, is actually going to reach your physical uh, <laughs> contact zone and right. touching you. Right, right. So I'm saying that that pe- people uh, inherently don't like uh, don't like right. that kind of aggressive behavior. Yeah, and it, although that talk exists, it's uh, it, it, it it spells sexual violence. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an it's an aura that's not uh, it's not appropriate to the office. So what can I say? Uh, J- John F. Kennedy was infamous for having affairs, for being a playboy. He was a ladies' man, right? Yeah, I mean that's that was part of the aura. It was part of, and, and, and you're selling. You no, know, someone tried to tell me that they didn't like John F. Kennedy because he was getting all that sex. I mean, people thought that was <laughs> men were thinking this is you know go for it, right? Go, Joe Namath, right? Joe Namath for president. I mean, people people think this is just terrific. Well, but people gravitate it's all towards the, it. Yeah, all this downside. You know, there's all this downside uh, to, uh, to to behavior, and, and that's why you know society created rules. That's why people are supposed to you know have be married when they have kids and stuff to create stable society, right? Stable households, healthy children, all that stuff. That's, the, that's all this flip side of all the fun. The president likes to have fun, you know, go, good for him. But all this hurting has to stop. You know, we can't be, we can't, we can't be in situations where there are intolerable crimes being committed against any members of society, let alone the most vulnerable. Uh, Maxwell uh, and uh, Maxwell and, and Epstein are n- notoriously reported as traffickers in sexual blackmail involving underage children, and it, it, you know that's just an attack on the family, an attack on our future because the young people will grow up to be the next generations of adults. So and our president despicable. wished, and our president wished her well. The, pre- the president wishing well, and this is Amazing. this is creating this perturbed sense in the society. It's creating a feeling of unease. Because we don't understand the president's intentions, we don't understand. We don't understand why. Why, given the allegations that the president isn't able to condemn that in general and say, uh, you know, preying on children for sex is bad. Okay. Yeah, if you love, if you if you love the guy or hate the guy, you, you still have to come to the, con- the conclusion that that was a little odd. To well, wish yeah, her there, well. So there were odd dimensions, <laughs> this, and in fact, I found it so odd that I thought I should apply my investigative tools to those remarks. Oh, that's right. We we do have the audio of that, by the way. Well, maybe maybe we should load that up and let, and have a little listen. Yes, we'll do that. But by the way, did you happen to come across the Lincoln Project ad they did of uh, Trump? Lincoln Project. Well, the Lincoln Project has a series of, of ads. Yes. Oh, they have more than one. Oh, yeah, I think the Lincoln Project is, I, on Facebook every week. I see new things coming from there. Oh crap! I thought they only had one ad. I got that ad right here. Let, let's play that ad first. Let's play, well, let's see what you got. Okay, let's play that. The most deceptive lying president in history. Did you hear that, by the way? I certainly did, yes. Okay. Finally told the truth. Somehow, it was more shocking than all his deceptions. When you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people. You're going to find more cases. 
So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Slow the testing down? Slow down our chance to save tens of thousands of lives. Slow down our understanding of where COVID is and how it's spreading. Slow down the steps to reopen the economy. Every single expert told him to test more and test faster. And now we know his response. Slow the testing down, please. That's why this November, more than ever, the choice is clear. It's America or Trump. That's like a movie trailer. It's pretty heavy. There's pretty, a lot of loaded language in these in these uh, political ads. Yeah, very politically charged there, no doubt. And, of course, we do have the audio that you have um, dissected, um, John. Yes, but before we play that, I will just say that Go ahead. on this notion of testing, which is, which is one of the concerns of the critics of this COVID response, uh, uh, comparably, we could say that, you know, if we, if we stopped investigating crimes, the U.S. crime rate would go way down. By the way, we have someone by the name of Matthew S. saying, are you going to bring up President Trump banned Epstein from Mar-a-Lago, Michael? And yeah. Well, and so you just brought that up. We just uh, brought it up right yeah, now. They, they, had, they had a falling out of some sort, and there were some consequences to that. Uh, and you know, this is these are lives in a in a high uh, high flying circles. They're intermingled. These people know each other. It is what it is. Uh, they get along. They don't get along. I think we're less interested in the soap opera of this and more interested in the in the social justice ends and the the right. You know, what what's going to happen to the surviving victims? And will there be justice? Will Jelaine make it to to uh, the court? Uh, the president. You know, if he surrounded himself with unsavory unsavory characters at some time in his life. Um, uh, as a man of the people, as a populist president, yeah, I, I think it's you know it's part of it's taking a bite into the big big American apple pie. You know, he wasn't looking out for worms and seeds, biting in, and he's just going with what's already there. He didn't, in other words, President Trump didn't create Jeffrey Epstein and Elaine Maxwell. He, you know, he is a person of the time who was a part of part of that social dynamic that involved those people. But it's not as if he. You know, those, take the president, take president out of it. Those people would have still been doing what they were doing. Uh, just that he's also he's also tainted with it. Uh, whatever whatever advantages he thought he was getting from that, uh, it, you know, there was some downside. And maybe you know, this president is 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 has made some intelligent comments about trends and events like nine eleven and such. He's made some intelligent comments over over the years from time to time that I respected. Yeah, leading up, and he was talking about nine eleven. You may have foreseen this day. You know, when Epstein and and Maxwell are being brought through the court system. His name and all these other names are coming up, and and further that the Netflixes of the world are dragging uh, his name and all these other names, you know, through the through the ter- terrible sewer of the story. Uh, that may have informed, may have inf- you know informed his uh, sense that he needed to cut. Yeah, just cut, remember uh, that. Ties. Yeah, just remember the Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein uh, case with plaintiff Katie Johnson. And so this is one of the survivors who named Trump in, in a case against Epstein. That's right. And so, yeah, there are many, there are many of these cases and the rights of the survivors and the victims is an area that I'm concerned about uh, when these issues arise. Uh, and the, the, you know, the hardcore therapist position is that they're willing to make, just like a physician, you know, they're willing to make the difficult cuts, the necessary cut. In other words, you know, some, I'm willing to go through some sort of painful pr- process right. to get this stuff resolved rather than letting it linger. And, and, and foment into something more toxic. It's like that. I have, you know, I have to be willing to make those cuts. Not everyone in a society is, is can, can do that. 
know, accept responsibility for that and, and take action on that. Most people won't. But if we don't, if we don't make the necessary cuts, then there's uh, worse consequences for everybody later. We allow, if we allow the institutions like the family to be run roughshod over by these abusive personalities uh, who may or may not be, be wealthy and, and connected to major establishment figures. If we, if we allow them to win, you know, humans, this is, these are like, this situation is, the situation is like an enemy of humanity. You know, it's an, it's crimes against children are crimes against the human species. So it's very, it's very contemptible, but it's unavoidable. Uh, these are the times that we live in. These are the people who were born in this time who live here. And it's, it's simply, we are called to respond as best we can to those situations. As you said, the taboo around this is so, it's so offensive to most people, uh, that may lead to people not applying their best resources to seek justice in these, in this, in cases like this because of the, uh, the, the toxic nature of the material itself. It's so toxic. As you said, it's this, this case is so toxic unto itself that psychologically the culture is, is repelled by it. People don't embrace this case. It's repulsive. And people don't like talking about this for sure. And but again, it's, mm-hmm. at, it's at, it's at, it's at huge risk. If we're not willing to take the bitter pill and get and work through, work through this garbage part of our experience, uh, we're, we are guaranteeing that it, we're leaving something worse for people come after us. Better, better to take the, better to do the necessary cuts now. Uh, rather than let the condition get worse. Uh, if, if there's ju- unmet justice in this case, get Gillian Maxwell t- to trial so she can give testimony in open court and let, you know, let the fair and impartial justice system do its thing on this case. If, if, if it's found that there are other figures involved in part, art parties who were involved in crimes, the, all that justice should be settled. I, I don't know any other answer. I, as I say, I'm a therapist working with survivors of sexual assault. <laughs> yes, so. you you are, you definitely cover this from a very deeper angle. In terms I, I, of I'm invested. Victims. I'm invested in that that there is a solution. That solutions emerge from this problem. I'm invested in that. That there are solutions. That's good. I'm I'm glad that you do care because many people don't uh, about anything really, but. I'm glad you're out there. And Lee J says, what about Trump providing information during Epstein's first case? I saw a video when the lawyer going against Epstein said he was one of the few who provided information. Uh, yeah. So I, I recall, I recall the report that the president was forthcoming and that can be interpreted as, as a, as a sign of innocence when people are forthcoming. Very true. Very true. But that's also what criminals do to get to save their own ass. Uh, the, the, the deal maker of the century, President Trump, <laughs> cutting deals with the prosecutors. I don't think that's, I think this man has been to court so many times. If you look at his, his legal history, this man has been in and out of the courts over business issues for disputes for decades. That's true. So is, is he a master a, a player of the legal system? Uh, yeah, there's, there's an element of that in this too. I don't I, trust this anybody. Is where, this is where we come up and say, <laughs> do we trust people? I, think I don't trust anyone. Can we trust people on face value? Their assertions that they, when they make claims, like spoken assertions, that we can just work with that. And I, I've, I, I position myself as someone in a field who, who questions that all the time. Yeah. My work with speech challenges that consistently. It says we need to look a little deeper, especially in high stakes situations. We need, we need to be willing to just take a little deeper at human speech. So that, that, that is my cue for the, uh, the, the clip that I, I sent up there from the president and his, his comments just, just this week on his well, well wishes for the incarcerated. All right, here we go. 
I don't know. I haven't really been following it too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach. And I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the situation with Prince Andrew. Just don't know. Not aware of it. So I've interpreted that audio. I've rolled it up in my digital editor and I spun the audio grains around and resequenced it. And I came up with what I thought was a message. And uh, I thought he, I thought he said, "Lady was my surrender." And when I thought of this notion of surrender or capitulation. It seemed to reflect the public uh, reputation of, pres- of the president for dominance and submission dynamics. Let's hear that one more uh, time. And further, and further to that, in the in the, uh, the sy- symbolism of the human orgasm, in, from a literary perspective, people talk about the orgasm as surrender. See various authors. I think I'm thinking about French literature right now. I, I can't remember any titles off the top of my head, but the notion of the the orgasmic experience is surrender. And so the president is referring consciously to this person, and uh, and in the course of doing so, it appears as if like as if he was sleep talking. There's this additional encrypted information about a surrender, perhaps related to this individual, as if the president had an orgasm associated with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, as if they were in a sexual encounter. Oh, my. And not only that, but the, but the notion of capitulation itself does not assert a dominant posture, but rather a submissive posture. It, it plays into a, a psychological and physical domination scenario where, the, where President Trump states his well wishes towards the incarcerated Maxwell due to her psychological domination of the president. Do you think Ghislaine Maxwell slept with President Trump at one time or another? I think that they have they have had intimate contact, and I don't know all the particulars of it, but I think they are intimate associates by that she knows dimensions of the president's sexual preferences. I, I would say that much. My goodness. Well, they were swingers. Uh, Trump was a swinger? Well, Epstein and Ghislaine. Maxwell were swingers. Right. While they were in a supposed relationship. Uh, whatever they, whatever uh, envelope boundary pushing these people were doing, I guess they were pushing all of them. I, I, I'm, I'm, I feel confident that the president seems uh, enmeshed sexually with Blade Maxwell and that, there's a, there, that there is a uh, indication of psychological domination that could not only be construed from his open remarks where he said he wished her well, who, you know, someone who's being prosecuted for these terrible crimes, not to say that she's committed any of them, but rather it's just the whole circumstances is so unseemly. That's so what people are saying, you know, what's she got on him? She was I'm big. Saying, well, it seems as if. She was big pimping, in my opinion. I, well, yeah, a lot of people's conservative opinions that there's, there were serious crimes. Uh, and so the president appears psychologically dominated and unable to form a what traditional uh, president watchers might construe as a leaderly uh, response to that inquiry, which would include the, con- the public condemning of the crimes for which those people were supposedly arrested. Ghislaine Maxwell isn't that bad looking of a woman, by the way. She's not an ugly woman at all. Uh, well, beauty may or may not be an indication of character. I mean, you know, maybe she, maybe her karmic uh, cycle. You know, she came off a great, a great life where she did lots of good things, and you know, she manifested as physical beauty, and then she took she took all those beauty resources and translated them. Horrible crimes, and maybe her next incarnation should come back as some kind of lizard or uh-huh. centipede or something. 
But also, if you want a deeper look into the life of Ghislaine Maxwell, you got to check up with the, the father, Robert Maxwell. A very influential publisher. Oh, it goes um, deep. A, a Rupert Murdoch type, type of figure who was who intensely implicated in, in uh, spy uh, operations. Uh, Mossad. These are some bad people, John, in my opinion. Hey, uh, a lot of death in this world, and uh, <laughs> we're part of some of it. So oh yeah, this 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 is uh, you know this is our culture. We we are in our we are in a in sort of a cultural gangland environment. Our our subculture uh, you know celebrates. We celebrate Roger Stone, a convicted felon, in our subculture. Now, Roger Stone is what, what's going on with Roger Stone? By the way, is he free? He he will he he was freed under time served, so he will not be going to prison, and he is back. Uh, giving interviews, and I, I, I think he's committed to some some Republican uh, politicians' campaign. I can't remember the details of it, but the aura of Roger Stone is some is someone that the society celebrates because via the president's uh, commuting the sentence, he beat the system. He beat the system. By the way, let's play that clip one more time for those that didn't hear it. I don't know. I haven't really been following it too much. I just wish her well, frankly. Uh, I've met her numerous times over the years, especially since I lived in Palm Beach. And I guess they lived in Palm Beach. Uh, but I wish her well, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know the situation with Prince Andrew. Just don't know. Not aware of it. And so one of the considerations that's that's in the scuttle, but now around this case is that the president will at some point pardon Jelaine Maxwell. Interesting. That he only ups talks people who are, are going to be, uh, who are like Flynn or others who have received uh, favorable treatment. If that happens, that's, that's going to be completely telling. I think, given the way things have gone historically, that... It, it seems to me that people in these positions are more likely to end up like the DC madam. Oh my, you're going deep with the reference there. It was a case from the yeah. 2000, 2001 era. That's right. Of a person who held a list of highly influential figures in Washington, DC, who did not make it to see her day in court. Oh my, I'm glad you brought that up by the way. And you know, there, there's so much to talk about in terms of this love triangle that we see with Trump Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, even... Is it love, though? Is it really love? Well, I mean, I, I said that because, it, you know, it sounds cute. <laughs> Best friends forever. BFF. BFF, my friend. I don't trust these people. Never did from day one. It, it's really hard for me to trust anyone, really. Uh, again, I like the president, but this has always been an issue with me, with him personally. The fact that he's tied with these these folks here. If we th if we expand this notion and we think about the nation itself, America is enwrapped with criminal culture via the CIA's CIA's unholy marriage with, with the mafia, which was part of the strategy to succeed in the invasion of Europe. Right. So the CIA is on the payroll as you know, part of the government, except they're in bed with uh, Al Capone, and so the whole society, Uncle Sam, you know, Uncle Sam is 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 playing gangster roles in a whole bunch of different situations. We, we always we don't have. want to see yeah. them. I don't want to think about Canada sending $10 million for the military equipment, heavy arms to Saudi Arabia so it could blow up uh, Yemeni's school children. I don't yeah, want to think about it. That's true. Dark side of, of living in these first world cultures is our power to, to change the world 
but you know, it's a lot of it is we're not uh, we're doing it in destructive ways, and so people don't want to think about the nation that they love. The patriots don't want to think worse of their nation, but the um, the, the responsible parent pays attention to the child's condition. They want the child to grow up well. They're with them. They're in their the scrum with them every day, making sure things are working out. That they learn how to walk properly and eat properly and comb their hair. So uh, the people who are the real mothers and fathers of the society, you know, in a time of crisis, they, people feel called to do different things, whatever, express themselves in different ways to ensure that the society makes it through. Steer they play part a role in steering the society through the crisis. And yeah, this is disturbing news, but. If we don't, if we if we if we love the thing, we, we take care of it. Three hundred sixty degrees. We don't ignore, we don't ignore the uh, you know the wound on our kid's knee that you know turns into an infected wound if we don't treat it and it becomes a bigger and bigger problem. We love the kid. We take care of the wound. It's simple. That's so right. We're, we're called. You know, we're, even if it makes us unhappy, duty doesn't isn't supposed to make us happy. It's supposed to be for the long term happiness of everybody, not just us, the society. So. Even our favorite figures sometimes disappoint us. And uh, part of the culture now, people say, well, people want to be critical of this and that, then they must be haters. Their hearts are full of hate. You know, <laughs> yes. They're contemptible. Only the, they're, they're just contemptible people. And that's why they're always complaining. And I say it's not like that really. It's more, in my case, is that the bitter medicine is, is the solution. And the sooner we're willing to uh, get involved with the heavy lifting and the, and the dirtying of our hands to solve the problem, better it's going to be. Uh, but uh, yeah, these are these are dangerous paths. As I say, I've lost I've lost platforms. I've, lo I've lost radio platforms and online newspapers and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it, it leads it leads to problems. But that's that's for the you know that's for the courageous people. Life. If if, uh, if every time I said something, uh, you know, everyone just just agreed with me. I mean, what kind of a life would that be, right? Exactly. That's why I like doing the show. Some people complain and ask for things, but you know, I don't care. You know, people are going to complain about everything. Given, give, yeah, given a, given too much rope, people will complain yeah. uh, at the expense of you know doing the things in life that are worthwhile. And so, criticism has its place. I think though that uh, some some there are some reasons to feel, and in, in the mass culture now, there's there's a reason to feel that we must do something. You know, we like in the male community, we we must lock down, we must uh, vaccinate, we must mask up. The people are feeling really compelled that we we shouldn't be dilly dallying with these choices. And I, in my own work, I feel the same way that. Uh, if I feel I can do something that will, in the long term, be positive, I should do it sooner. Uh, and if you know, if I if I have an urge to you know to, to just break something that, and not make something better, you know, I need to ease off on on that. I, I I can't make or break the president's reputation. No president has has ever left office because I criticized them. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? That's funny. Well, I mean, if so, people don't like it, they, so again, they don't have to care, listen. You know, if we care, we'll do we'll do the dirty part as well as the fun part. Right. John, if they don't like it, they don't have to listen. It's just that simple. And, uh, by and the that way, as well. oh, that's right. And by the way, you mentioned hydroxy, uh, chloroquine, by the way. And I have to say, um, a doctor out here was uh, speaking actually very positively about it, saying it was treating a lot of people, making lots of people recover out here in my area of all central California, where we have seen a very deadly spike out here. Um, people are talking about a second wave, but we're barely getting the first wave out here, John. And, a, a doctor out here, he's been talking very highly of the drug. Uh, hydro, yeah, hydroxychloroquine. There, there are local mm -hmm. clinics and local practitioners in different regions of the states who uh, have talked about and worked with it. And and there's it has been some success. Place as well, given its uh, long-time treatment for malaria, 
uh, the federal government has stockpiled, I think, $63 million worth of it or 63 million doses or something. So, it, you know, it's been, it's, it's been a commodity in the medical uh, world for, for a considerable amount of time. But how we determine national policies is a whole layer of questions. And so right. it may be something that will continue to find favor as long as they as long as they continue to produce it and allow it in the U.S. that the doctors will continue to prescribe it. That may be the case. Yeah, in terms of how national policies are formed, that's a whole other level of decision making uh, that uh, uh, you know America has provided a CDC and a National Institutes of Health. They provided the they, they even had they even had panels and things organized under the Obama administration around pandemics and at the George W. Bush administration they had pandemic infrastructure in place and so I think I think we have to be uh, willing to look at that as well if, if hydroxychloroquine doesn't make it to national policy there's going to be ten other uh, candidates I mean it's not like there's, they're not going to find something so I think uh, it's just been a little bit too much hype a little bit too much excitement because of the president's powers as a pitchman. You know, those Goya beans are selling off the shelves because they know that the president of Goya loves President Trump. And that hydroxychloroquine got a lot of leverage from president's endorsement from the pulpit. I mean, that was the president of the United States saying, we'll get that hydroxychloroquine. It wasn't Donald Trump. So, uh, yeah, these things exist. I, I'm not persuaded. I, I'm not even necessarily persuaded. I'm so cynical. I'm not even necessarily persuaded that there's a vaccine, you know, that there's a molecular There, there might not. Yeah I, yeah, I don't think we're going to find one. But, yes, hydroxychloroquine and... Uh, Zithromycin is also working pretty good. The Z Pack, but yes, uh, not it doesn't work for everyone. But what I'm trying to say is, out here in my area, it's been working pretty good, according to a doctor. Well, again, if that's uh, but if that's a, a good doctor thing. through his care and supervision is able to guide his patients to success, you know, it's not for me to say anything. Uh, that 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 particular treatment has a reputation for creating heart problems, uh, so someone will have to assume liability for that as well. But in terms of forming national policies, it's a whole other game. And uh, we've been too, I think we've been uh, too quick, too quick to uh, to put down the potential for good science on this. And uh, just too, too, a little too inhibited overall. The, the climate has been too, a little too un, unscientific uh, to expect a good result. I, what can I say? Uh, you know, yeah, it's a popular, it's a popular topic. I wasn't sold on it. Uh, should the president be pitching uh, products from from the from the from the podium when he's the president? Probably uh, not. That's a whole question to itself too. Yeah, probably not. In my opinion, I don't think yeah, that's a probably a, good know, thing. It's a little bit too much working the stock market. You know, a little too much, a little too much unfair advantage for the president to be promoting stocks you know, during from the White House. <laughs> so right, and by the way, he John wants to make money, but uh, sure, is that do we need that culture? Do we need Laura Ingraham telling us about national health policy? I mean, she's a big stock promoter, isn't that her history? Right, stock market, <laughs> and we're all these fat, we're all pushing the, the latest craze, right? Everyone get in on this thing, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. I don't think that's necessarily the type of temperament that should be making national health decisions. And by the way, John, how do you feel Trump has handled the pandemic? Do you think he's handled it in a appropriate manner? Um. I think uh, I, I think from the most practical perspective that it's we have a we're in a situation where we have a failed response, but at the same time we don't have we don't have the blueprint for the correct response either because nobody knows how to how to actually solve this problem. Right. But but it can be said in all fairness, just objectively, the numbers say presently we have a failed response. Um, uh, and do, did the Trump, did the president sincerely try to do his best? I think that he, in his heart, he maybe 
cares about people, but I think there's just two, he's part of the culture that saw the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee betting on the stock market while he was telling people that there was no pandemic. You remember that? I remember that. He was calling it a hoax, basically. Three, at least three senators, Diane Feinstein and her husband, a junior senator from uh, the South and the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, all named in stock trades while they were publicly uh, telling people to, to calm down. They were betting on a huge pandemic for their personal profit. The insider trading. Out. It's, it's, it, the appearance of that is, is contemptible. Uh, and it, it turns out that Justice Department is not interested in prosecuting any of them. But what I'm really getting to is that the president, in that regard, he's such a player by being a, biz, a businessman, a, a business success, at least in terms of his his uh, mobility in the U.S. business market. This guy's had every opportunity in the world, right? I mean, properties in Las Vegas and New York, it's crazy. In terms of the mobility, uh, he is also, he's part of that pitchman culture, which is, uh, which, which can be, uh, which can be a very, very uh, dangerous and destructive thing. It's having a business, having a, having one of the world's famous capitalists in the world running the country may or may not be the best thing for America. Uh, one of the big arguments in the last two years of campaigning has been that Bernie, Bernie Sanders' socialism and his communism or whatever people want to call it, uh, that was just too different from expectations. But uh, here we have a big business player and a, a celebrated business player with his own TV show where he fired people. He's a celebrated boss. And I don't see a lot of boss action. I've worked in the Fortune 500. I've worked in ISO 9000 environments. And uh, I assure you... Uh, uh, you know, crisis response didn't necessarily uh, look a lot like a lot of this. I'm afraid it's just by circumstances, uh, there's too much pol- politics, there's too much vested interest. The medical industry has already has its own problems, uh, you know, as to who gets the exclusive on the vaccine. You see all that, that, that fighting in the boardrooms. Everyone wants to be exclusive profiting off the crisis. That's the That's sad part. Are. And, and this kind of thinking is where the problem is. This is the psychology of the times. In other words, the president is a product of these times as much as he's a, uh, a leadership figure uh, in his own right, but he's a product of the times. So this is the guy who showed the world how to eat pizza backwards. And uh, when I asked that question, has Trump handled the pandemic in a, in a appropriate manner? Logically, I have to say, I'm not even sure anyone could really handle a pandemic, especially a president of all people, as they are at times clueless. I must say, uh, Trump followed the World Health Organization, and they had things wrong. But that was early on in the game. Add Dr. Fauci to that list. And I don't um, dislike or have any hate in my heart for any of these people. I have no hate in my heart uh, for anyone, for the record. Many mistakes were made. And I'll be diaphanously clear, most most people, um, they were wrong. The quote-unquote experts had it wrong early in the game as well. Yeah, there were a lot of, a lot of people uh, were wrong. failed forecasts that arose through this. And, the, and this was supposed to be, at least my understanding was that these were the instruments of the, of the, of America. This is all that tax money and all those research dollars and hours that had gone into creating these positions. These answers that people were giving were supposed to represent the best of the best. This was supposed to be, I think there was a lot of expectation that this is going to be a, a, a winning, a winning campaign. Yeah, I don't see any winning anywhere. I think China won, personally speaking. It's it, yeah, it's hardship all around. It's 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 hurting all around. This president could lose could lose November just because of this uh, disastrous year. So he's you know he's at risk. We're all at risk in different ways. 
um, we, there's there's a very little sense of control and some of the psychology of what we're seeing in terms of unleashing federal troops and such speaks to uh, attempts to cr- create feeling of security in a very unsecure time. A very insecure time. And in terms of COVID-19, where exactly do you stand with that, uh, John? Do you believe this was bioengineered? I believe that the depth and complexity of the bioengineering defense research in North America, Europe, and uh, other places is so intense uh, that the risk, it creates the risk of accidental uh, release of contaminants. That's just like if you had your checklist, your OSHA checklist for safety on a site like that, and all the different things you'd have to wish out for. That's one of them. It, right. creates, it creates the risk just by doing it. So I, I think I think we I think it's a, part of this is a call to review our standing on uh, this kind of research. One of my one of my limited understandings of what's going on is that research that was not lawful to conduct in the United States related to biohazard materials was conducted outside of the country. So that the United States has a, is a stakeholder in a variety of labs, including the Wuhan lab, which was a, co- a major controversy that uh, Fauci and Obama moved money to the lab and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this notion that the U.S. is a stakeholder in a number of labs, uh, biowarfare, chemical labs, and in part, it relates to the fact that this research was banned domestically and possibly one of the reasons it was banned domestically is considered too much of a danger to no, the population. Exactly. And so I say that uh, uh, the people who want to investigate what investigate or put great pressure to investigate to get inspectors general back out to places like Fort Detrick and other sites uh, when there's these these concerns I don't think those I don't think those are irrational calls people this this is a time for troubleshooters and auditors to step in is a time to make sense out of what is going on because there's this perce- this perception this perception of loss loss of control relates to people's uh, trust or belief in their own government. And if the society, if the perception of the, of the majority is that society is the instruments of control and the, uh, the structures of control are no longer working, then it will lead to a form of anarchy and you know, civil violence uh, next level. And so this is a very, uh, this is a very telling time. If, if an enemy has attacked the United States through this crisis, it was to compel the population to turn against their own government. In other words, perceptions that the government is incompetent or that the government response is incompetent would be said to feed into enemy agendas to to uh, to have the population turn against against his own, the federal government here. And the mirror of that in China is the uh, the CIA fomented unrest. Not that there isn't native unrest in Hong Kong, but there are, there is this uh, uh, manipulated uh, unrest as well. Uh, it's part of the Hong Kong experience. And what I what I need to say is that the uh, it, the CIA, the st- a state op- a state operation is is cited in the unrest in Hong Kong that is that is intended to spread wild like wildfire in other cities in China due to existing social unrest, and that they all go into protest and overthrow the Communist Party. So the United States, uh, through that instrument, through that department, is attempting to subvert the Communist Party. Are other governments attempting to subvert the government of the United States? Well, that's what. Leading nations seem to be doing. The United States is certainly doing it. Again, I say this: this crisis is is, call, is, is a time for us to reflect, uh, and I, I think it's already clear to many progressive thinkers. This is a time to reflect on how we can make constructive changes for the better. And the, the, you know, if we're if we're if we're sidelined now, when we get back on the field, how can we do things different and better? But our, if we're under a war, the, the uh, likelihood that that was just a, a first, let's say that was a first strike, 
there have there's no other overt uh, conventional strikes that have fallen. Uh, you know, the concern if, if we're at war with China is uh, is nuclear war. And although the the, the uh, diplomacy is falling apart, we know that the Chinese consulate in Houston is closed, and that one of the, one of the city consulates in China for the United States has now been closed by their government. Uh, you know, this is, we're certainly playing on the chessboard. We're taking the pawns off the table. Eventually, we're going to get into some of the bigger players, which will involve a shooting war. We're still we're still in diplomacy and negotiations, but fr- friends don't do this to each other. Canada hasn't closed its U.S. embassy, and the U.S. embassy in Canada is still running, as far as I know. You know what yes, I'm lots it's to not, look. It's not, it's not, it's not, it doesn't look friendly when China and the United States are closing each other's embassies. Not at all. And, of course, China striking the deal with Iran, that's another thing to worry about uh, for everyone again. Well, China has international business in in Africa, many many places, uh, the major infrastructure uh, projects, and so on. I, I don't know all the particulars of the relationship to Iran, but um, people are concerned as a uh, if they have a military alliance. China is winning. I'm telling you. Well, so what you're speaking to is is this notion of the decline of empire over the last 20 years that the uh, America America spent its capital fighting wars in Afghanistan and in, in Iraq. Uh, the rest of the world repositioned itself to, to, for a uh, a non-polar uh, arrangement that, that that would that diminish the U.S. position. Uh, you know, R- Russia is currently fielding I don't know how many they have. They're right. fielding hypersonic weapons, and the United States is five years out from. Uh, Putting those in the hands of the soldiers. So while while the United States prosecuted certain agendas, the rest of the world had different priorities. And maybe people in America are, are saying now, "Gosh, you know the, the 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 goals that we were pursuing for the last thirty years may or may not be the right goals for for our us and our descendants. Maybe we need new goals, new priorities. Maybe that will come of this. Maybe some you know the better goals will come. Uh, the, the United States is a huge investment in its military infrastructure. Uh, it's the largest part of the economy. Uh, so that would be a huge change if that became a lesser part of the economy, because right now it's the most it's the largest part. So, John, we have come to an end of our discussion here. And I wanted to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. Always fun to catch up with you, John. I, I hope that uh, some of the things I said made sense. I, I uh, had a great time you know, going over the news of the day with you, Michael, as always. A terrific, a terrific broadcast and you're a terrific host. I, I, I look forward to every meeting with you. No, thank you so much, John. And before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to plug or get off your chest here? Now is the time. Well, people are, are fighting with the consequences of lockdown, their impact on their emotions and their psychological outlook, their, their, their prospects for happiness. And I work as a clinician. I offer services toll free. If you're interested in alternative counseling and therapy, you can find out on my website, yourinnervoice.com, what I offer. And my toll-free number is one 888 I swear I give some of the greatest coaching of our times. Uh, if you want to find out more about that, just get in touch with me and, and let's get together. Let's learn about the secrets of your inner voice. Very nice. Yourinnervoice.com is where you can find more of John's work. Always a honor and pleasure to speak to you, John, and we will do this again soon. I look forward to more talks with you, Michael. All the, all the best. All right, brother. Take care out there. Mahalo. And there he goes, boys and girls. That was Mr. John Kelly. Very, very, very fun and interesting conversation. It just went down. And yes, for those that don't know, I will return, I believe, Tuesday with my kitty as he makes his return. Currently, right now, he was actually filming. I believe he had a video shoot for his band. So we will talk about that Tuesday. And yes, I do want to thank all of you for being a part of the program yet again. Always fun. Always interesting to uh, talk to all sorts of walks of life. And of course, looking at the chat room here, I'm glad you got to hang out with me here tonight. 
And of course, tomorrow, I'm actually live over at Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. If you want bonus material, well, sign up over at Patreon and you'll get another dose. The Michael Deacon program. And yes, tomorrow's episode will be quite controversial as they usually are here. And I want to thank you once again for being a part of the program. Uh, you are a part of the program, by the way. You at home listening, no matter if you listen to this live or on iTunes, Stitcher, or CastBox, you are very much a part of the show, just like I am. You are essential, no doubt. Again, patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already. And yes, download the podcast rendition of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, and I believe there's one more. But of course, international listeners out there, thank you so much for your support. Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, Norway, Brazil, and Sweden. Lots of amazing folks out there that listen to this program. Thank you for all the love and support that comes from Sweden. Very nice. A hundred days to go. Or is it 99, depending on where you are? The next election is around the corner, boys and girls. Who are you going to vote for? Who will you vote for? Who will you not vote for? I'm not voting for Joe Biden, that's for sure. You can, though, if that's what you want. Once again, I do hope the very best for all of you out there. And, of course, there's nothing more frightening than reality. I hope you will. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, mahalo.